Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to the never-ending 11th chapter of Hebrews. I should say the never-ending 11th chapter of the never-ending book of Hebrews. Uh, honestly, I knew the, uh, the book of Hebrews is one of the longer letters in the New Testament, so I knew it would take us a while to get through there, but I never planned to spend eight weeks in the 11th chapter. So, uh, But once we got there, I didn't know any other way to do it. Tonight, we want to cover a lot of ground. We're going to cover the 22nd through the 29th verses. Eight whole verses. Two guys, Joseph and, uh, and Moses. 11th chapter of Hebrews is uh, Paul trying to encourage the, uh, the Jews, uh, not only those that are, uh, that are well, the, the book of Hebrews was most probably attached to the book of Galatians. Paul said in writing to the Galatians, you see what uh, a long letter I've written in my own hand. Well, the book of Galatians is six chapters, so he's got to be talking about something in, in addition to that. So if the book of Hebrews is not that which Paul spoke of, then there's something else out there that we don't know what it is. But uh, since the, the problem with the churches in Galatia was that the Jews in Jerusalem were sending people to the region of Galatia and the outlying areas to try to impose the law of Moses upon the, the Gentile Christians. And that's what the, everything about the book of Hebrews is. It's talking about the, the supremacy of Christianity over uh, Judaism. How much more excellent it is in, in a variety of ways. He talks about the, that uh, Christianity is greater than, than the priest. He's greater than the sacrifice. It's greater than, than anything and everything that there was. Now, he's uh, encouraging them in chapter 10 uh, to go back to the, the strength of faith that they began with. So he's got to be talking to somebody other than the Galatian church. Because at the time that Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, uh, there were some Gentile, I mean, there were some Jewish believers there in Galatia too, but not very many. And so for him to talk about and encourage them, remember where you started, he knows that this letter is going to be sent back to the place where the Jews had been sent from to impose the law of Moses upon Galatia. He knows it's going back to Jerusalem. So when he tries to imp uh, encourage them to go back to the faith that they began in, that tells us, that it was the, the situation that we have record of in the book of Acts, the early days of the church. And you remember how they were gathered together and the church was growing. There were signs and wonders and miracles and great things taking place. And during the, the first uh, seven years of the, book of, the, uh, of the church, as recorded in the book of Acts, there was persecution, great persecution that arose. And the Jews stood fast. I mean, they, they held steady. They were scattered. Many of them had to be scattered around. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla are talked about as having been in Jerusalem and, had, and were scattered because of the persecution. And so there were others as well that had to travel to different parts of the world. But Paul is encouraging them to go back to that strength of faith, that steadfastness that, that, steadfastness that they started with. And then he tells them, using an Old Testament scripture to encourage them, he says, Now the just shall live by faith. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is all examples of the just living by faith. That's why we have this hall of fame of heroes, faith heroes. Now tonight we want to talk about Joseph and Moses. There's two guys in the Old Testament that I always liked the best. One was David. He was a man after God's own heart. He was the guy that went out, kid, you know, that went out and a uh, 17-year-old probably, somewhere around there, went out and defeated Goliath. You know, as a young person reading Bible stories growing up in Sunday school, you know, he was the guy you wanted to be. You could just relate to him. Joseph, I never could relate to him. The guy was perfect. He never messed up. At least you could see where David messed up. David was human. Joseph was superhuman. I mean, he didn't mess up in anything. Now, there's another thing about this. Why don't we start over in chapter 11, verse 22. We'll read the verse of Scripture, um, the one verse of Scripture it tells us about Joseph. It says, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Now, folks, if you go back to the book of Genesis, there's a lot of information about Joseph. And, and I trust that most of you remember the story of Joseph and, and the things that he encountered and the different things that, uh, that took place in his life. We know these things because the Bible goes into some detail about them. You remember Joseph had a dream where uh, the sun and the moon and the other stars bowed down to his star. And uh, the, the sheaves in the field, you know, the, the, uh, that were gathered up, the bunches of, of wheat bowed down to his bunch. And it might not have been the smartest thing for him to do to, to tell his brothers and his father about this because nobody accepted it, nobody received it very well, although it turned out to be the plan of God. It was the very thing that caused his brothers 
to deceive their father and sell their brother into slavery. You remember they took this coat of many colors and they put animal blood on it and told their father that he had been killed out in the field. But in reality, they'd sold him into slavery. Well, that's not a real great way to start off as a 17-year-old boy, is it? But instead of him letting it get him down, he sold into slavery and bought by a great man in Pharaoh's uh, uh, kingdom. I do that. He sold into slavery. Give me something else. Okay, I'll stand here. He sold into slavery and bought by a great man in Pharaoh's kingdom named Potiphar. Now, he's, the favor of God is on him. And he becomes great in Potiphar's house. Everything he puts his hand to prospers. Potiphar realizes, hey, this guy is something special. And, and he, he gives him charge of everything that he, that he has in his, in his household. But then his wife takes a liking to him. And it says that she went after him day after day after day, begging him to go to, to bed with her. And he wouldn't do it. Now, folks, can I talk plainly to you about something? Potiphar's a great man. He's a man of importance. He's a, he's a very important man. We have to assume that he had a beautiful wife. Because in, in Egypt, in the way things were in that day, of course, it's not like that today. But if he hadn't had a beautiful wife, he'd have gotten rid of her and gotten one that was. Because she had a lot to do with the way he looked in his position. So here's a beautiful woman trying day after day after day to get this young kid in bed. And he says, no, I can't do that. It would be wrong for me to sin against God. Now, can I ask you a question? What do you think the success rate for beautiful women getting guys in bed really is? I mean, not so beautiful women are pretty successful at that, aren't they? Yet this kid says no, this 17 or 18, 19 year old, however long he's in Potiphar's house, he says no to her day after day after day. We're not talking about her just offering once. She's after him day after day after day. And he says no because of his relationship with God. Wow. Well, she tells a lie on him. She grabs a hold of him. He runs out, leaves his coat there. And she says that he tried to take advantage of her and rape her. Potiphar believes his wife has him thrown in dungeon, in the dungeon. Well, that would seem to be, you know, the ultimate irony for him. He would have every right to complain to God here. I've done the right thing and look what's happened to me. But instead of getting negative, instead of having a bad attitude or being soured on anything, he just does what he's supposed to do in prison, winds up being the jailer's favorite. The jailer winds up putting him in charge of everything that takes place in the prison. You see this, this, this up and down with Joseph. He has this vision of the position that we know that he later holds, the one of ruling over just about everybody. But when he tells that, it causes him to be sold into slavery. Then he's bought by Potiphar and becomes great in Potiphar's house. And then his wife lies about him and he goes into the dungeon. But then he comes back up because he becomes the ruler of the jail. Then you remember the story about the two guys that are in there and they have dreams. The butler and the baker. They come to, to uh, they're, they're uh, depressed because they had these dreams and they don't know what they mean. And Joseph says, well, I have had some success with dreams. Tell me about them. So he did. He told the butler that in three days, his dream meant in three days he's going to be restored to the palace. He told the baker, he got excited and says, oh, this is great. Let me tell you what mine is. He told the baker, yeah, well, your dream means that the king's going to kill you in three days. Happened just the way that he said and he told the butler, he said, when you come back into Pharaoh's house, he said, remember me. Remember me. Tell the king about me. Tell the Pharaoh about me. I'm, I'm here wronged. I've been wronged to be put in this place. Tell him about me. Two whole years goes by and this guy never thinks, of, thinks a thing about the guy that got him there. Or told him that he was going. Finally, the king has a dream. You remember the story? He has a dream about... The seven lean uh, cattle, the seven fat cattle, and the lean cattle eat up the fat ones. He has another dream that that, uh, is a repetition of the same thing, a little different different aspect to it, but it means the same thing. Joseph interprets his dream and becomes second only to Pharaoh in the whole kingdom of Egypt, which was the world superpower of the day. 
Now, there's all kinds of things about Joseph's life that are just phenomenal. And, and like I said, it, it, it's kind of hard to relate to the guy because it's like he never missed it. Now, I know he did somewhere, but we just don't know where it was. Because everything the Bible tells us about it, every adversity that he found himself in, he always rose to the top. He kept a good attitude. He did what he was supposed to do. He didn't worry about, at least from what we see, from the Bible account, we don't see him sitting over in the corner complaining about how rough life is and unfair it is to him and all this kind of stuff. He just rises to the top everywhere he goes. Yet of Joseph's life, of all the things that you could talk about, his faith and his faithfulness and his reliance on God, the one thing that the Holy Ghost inspires Paul to pick out as the pinnacle of faith in Joseph's life is at the end of his life when he has, gives them commandments concerning his bones. Somebody explain that to me. Doesn't make sense, does it? Well, yeah, it does. Let's take verse 22 apart. It says, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Here's what happened. At the end of, uh, at the end of Joseph's life, now remember what's happened after Joseph becomes prime minister of, uh, of, of Egypt. By the way, do you know anything about Egyptian history? I mean, when we see things concerning Joseph and Moses, um, they were both operating in a land that didn't believe in God. Egypt had all kinds of other gods, but they didn't believe in, in who we know as God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, with Egypt and all the historical records they've got and the hieroglyphics and all the kinds of things that have been kept over thousands of years, if these guys were there, they should be in part of their record, shouldn't they? Well, they are. If you go back in Egyptian history, you'll find out that there was a certain person whose story was exactly like Joseph's when it comes to Pharaoh having a dream. Now, they changed it a little bit, and Pharaoh was the one that interpreted his own dream and so forth. But the end result was this other guy is made prime minister of Egypt second only to, to Pharaoh himself. You know what his name was? Imhotep. Now, if you've seen the Mummy and the Mummy Return movies, that's not who we're talking about. Imhotep is, is credited in Egyptian history as the one who, who identified or discovered or found the way to build with stone. He's the builder. He's the architect of the first pyramid. It was called the Step Pyramid. It's in Jakarta when we went to Egypt some years ago. We all saw it. And as a result, his method of building with stone was something that was, that was utilized in the, the, the great pyramids, the three pyramids that are still left today. Now, we don't know if he had anything to do with building them because nobody can really trace back how far they go and, and uh, you know, what Pharaoh is, is in there and that kind of stuff. If we knew who was in there, then we'd know who built it. But Imhotep was recognized as one of the greatest men in Egyptian history. That's an, there's an interesting thing about Imhotep is he's got a, 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 a tomb too. It's not, a, it's not a, a pyramid, but he's got a special tomb. And in Imhotep's tomb, when it was opened, they found all kinds of jars and, and different things. The Egyptians, uh, Egypt is all about death. You go to the nation of Egypt, it is so spectacular and it's so visual. The, the trip we took several years ago, we went to Egypt and then we spent a couple of days in Jordan and then we went to Israel. And we went straight from Egypt to Israel, and Israel was the biggest disappointment you can imagine. And everybody in the group, I'd been there before, and so I kind of knew what to expect. But everybody else in the group, or most everybody else in the group, got to Israel, and they're looking around, and they said, is this it? Really? This is it? And I'm, I'm smiling. I said, yeah, yeah, this is it. This is it. And then I explained to him, I said, look, Egypt is all about what you see on the outside. But it's all about death. It all represents death. Israel is nothing about what you see on the outside. But give it a few days and it'll get inside. And by the end of that week, that first week we were there in, in Israel, everybody said, oh, this is so great. Israel's the greatest place in the world. And same people that were saying, is this it? A few days ago. Because Israel has an inside Im impact on you. It has an effect on your heart. Not on your visual or your physical senses. Egypt is just the way around. Egypt is so visual. Everything is out there. But everything's a monument to death. 
So the Egyptians, when they, uh, when they put the pharaohs in the tombs and did all that kind of stuff, they'd put, uh, they'd put different things in jars, and these jars, even provisions and, and wheat and different grain and different things like that in these jars because the, the idea was these provisions are supposed to carry them across the, the, the what is it, the, the river Styx or whatever the Egyptian thing is to get them to the eternity and all that kind of stuff. And so there was all kinds of things in Imhotep's tomb except there was no coffin. There was no coffin. Well, why was there no coffin there? Because Zimotep was Joseph, and Joseph said to the, to the children of Israel, take me with you when you leave. Now, here's the question I've got for you. Why would Joseph do that? There's an answer that's very simple. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15. When you understand this, it makes everything about Joseph's life come into focus. It makes it understandable. It's the only thing that made him relatable to me. But I didn't find it out until I was older. Genesis chapter 15. Abraham is Joseph's great-grandfather. He didn't know him. He never knew him. But he knew about him. He knew about him from his grandfather Isaac and from his father Jacob, who was later became Israel. Notice what it says here in Genesis chapter 15 about the promise that God gave Abraham. Uh, let's start in verse 5. And he, God, brought him, Abraham, forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. And he said, uh, I'm the Lord that brought thee out of the earth of the Chaldees to give thee the, this land to inherit it. And Abraham said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now, this is, not a, this is not a matter of unbelief. He's just saying, how do I know? How do I know? And so the Lord instructs him to do some things. We won't read through the whole thing, but he instructs him to make a sacrifice. This was literally the cutting of the covenant with, between God and Abraham. But Abraham wasn't the one that shed blood. There was another one, the Bible says. There were two divine beings that walked in. One as a representative of Abraham, which was the Lord Jesus, and the other was God himself. It talks about a smoking flax and a burning, uh, what is it, burning lamp. Verse 17. It came to pass, we'll read this, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between these pieces. What is this? These are symbols of the glory of God. But notice there are two separate things. There are two separate entities. Well, why are there two separate entities? Well, they can't have a covenant unless both parties participate. Yet if you'll find out in the preceding verses, we skipped over it, but the Bible says the only thing Abraham did was scare the birds away from getting to the sacrifice and then fell asleep. It says God caused there to be a deep sleep to come upon him. So who are the two people that are participating in the covenant? God and Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. God and Jesus entered into the covenant, God representing himself and Jesus representing Abraham. So folks, the covenant that we have, the blessings of Abraham, Galatians 3.13, uh, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a, a curse for us, so that the blessing of Abraham would come upon us. The blessing of Abraham is so eternally established, it wasn't even Abraham that entered into it. It was God and Jesus. Now, if God makes a covenant with Jesus as a representative of Abraham, the rep who is the representative or the head of all of the people of God, if God makes that covenant with Jesus representing the, his people, what possibility is, is there of any part of it not coming to pass? In other words, you think God's not going to keep his word to his son? Now, I'm thinking naturally. I'm talking naturally here. But it would be easier for us to think, well, okay, God made a promise to man. But, you know, not every promise comes true. God didn't make a promise to man. He made a promise to his son on behalf of man. That's how real the blessing of Abraham is. Christ redeemed you from spiritual death, from sickness, and from poverty. That's the deal he made with Jesus, who is representing Abraham, who is representing you. Galatians 3.29, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, you've got an absolute heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall never fail promise, guarantee of redemption from spiritual death, sickness, and poverty.
That's what that meant. So, Abraham is aware of these things going on, but he's not participating. Notice it says in verse 18, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying unto thy seed, Have I given thee this land, or given this land from the river Egypt, unto the great river and the river Euphrates? And then he tells him about all the places that it's going to be. But part of the things that we, that we skipped over are the important parts where Joseph are concerned. Let's back up to verse 11. It says, When the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. In other words, this is a real solemn thing. This is a real sacred time. It's not all high heel, you know, jump up and down, let's hoop and holler for God. This was a real solemn occurrence. And it says, a, a horror of great darkness fell upon him, and he, God, said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. And shall serve them, and they shall afflict them, the other people shall afflict them, 400 years. And also that nation, which turned out to be Egypt, whom I shall judge, or or whom they shall serve, will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out, they, your people, your descendants, come out with great substance. And thou shalt go unto thy fathers in peace, that thou shalt be buried, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation... They shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not full. One promise, one occurrence, was the basis for everything that Joseph did in his life. Think about this. When Joseph was sold into slavery, wound up in Egypt, bought by Potiphar, serving in his house, From the time that he was 17 up until the time that he stood before Pharaoh, which was probably about age 30. 13 years thereabouts, we don't know for sure, but about 13 years goes by until he is made prime minister of Egypt. And the vision that he has 17 or 13 years before comes to pass. During that time, there is not one other person in Joseph's life or that he even comes in contact with that believes in God in any form whatsoever because nobody else has got a promise from God. Everybody else is worshiping idols. Abraham was an idol worshiper before God got to him. Everybody else is worshiping idols. Not one other believer. There's no Bible. He didn't have anything written down. There is no written recording or written record of anything that has happened until Moses comes on the scene. And Moses is 400 years after Joseph. Not one thing for him to hang on to except the story that his daddy and his granddaddy told him about great-grandfather Abraham and what God told him. And that story, that truth, was enough for Joseph to dedicate his life to doing the right thing and always staying on the right side of every situation so that he could partake of the promises that God had made. For that reason, it says over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, it says, and when Joseph was dying, just before he died, he remembered. Let me read it again. It's not this way in the English, but this is the original, uh, this is the, the word that's used. It says, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of Israel, of the children of Israel. That's not what it says. It says, when Joseph, by faith, when he died, Joseph remembered the departing of the children of Israel. Remembered from when? From what God told his great-granddaddy. The stories that he had been told about God appearing to and speaking to Abraham about the promise. Now think about where Joseph is at the time that he remembers. He's prime minister of Egypt. Egypt is a pretty great place to be at that point. He's in charge. His family has come to him. You remember the story about when his brothers came, they didn't know who he was, and and there was this big thing where he tested them and and so forth, but winds up falling on their necks, telling them who he is. They're scared. Oh, no, little brother's going to kill us now. And he says, no, God sent me here to save you. And instead of being against them or being angry with them or trying to get revenge on them or anything, he, he did great things for them. He went to Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers are come. And Pharaoh asked, he said, well, he said, what do you guys do? 
And they said, we're farmers. And he said, well, let me give you the best farmland. There's a land out here called Goshen. And if you look at it on the map, it's over where the, the Nile Delta is. It's the richest farmland in Egypt. They got the best of the best places to be. So when Joseph dies, instead of looking for an inheritance and leaving an inheritance for his children or for his brothers in Egypt, he's looking for something else. You remember how it says of others, it says they looked for a city. Abraham didn't build a house. He lived in tents because he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Abraham was one of the richest men on the face of the earth. But it didn't matter because he was looking for something that was more than the earth's wealth. So is Joseph. Joseph has the same attitude. He has the same dedication toward God. And so instead of looking for an Egyptian inheritance, he knows that the promise is this land is going to turn around on us. As good as it might be now and as great as they might think I am right now, there's coming a Pharaoh, the next one or, the, or maybe two down the way. There's coming somebody that's not going to remember me and not going to remember what happened. And they're going to turn these people into slaves. And so he said, I don't want to be buried in a strange land. I want to be buried where the land of promise is. So he remembered the departing of the children of Israel. Now get this. Before they ever become slaves, before they ever multiply, before they ever become greatly blessed of God, so that Pharaoh gets scared of them and makes them slaves, Joseph knows just by the one promise. Folks, what's amazing to me about this, what do you know of your great-grandfather? Do you know any specific events or any specific situations? Can you put yourself in Joseph's position and remember something specific about your great-grandfather or something specific about your family heritage that you hold on to like he did? I don't. I can't. I don't know who my great-grandfather was. I'm not sure. I want to look and see. Might not be glad about what we find out, you know. I don't know anything like that, but this was so much a part of Joseph's upbringing. This was so much a part of what his grandfather Isaac told him. It was so much a part of what his father Jacob or Israel told him. It was so much a part of who they were that it held him steady even as a teenager and all the way through his life. So when he died, by faith, this is the pinnacle of Joseph's faith according to the Holy Ghost. Now you and I might look at this and judge it differently. I'm, I'm pretty sure I would. From the examples that we have and the information that's given to us in the book of Genesis, I might look at Joseph's life and say, oh, boy, I can see a lot greater faith in different places. It would have been greater faith in my estimation for him to have a good attitude in prison and become the ruler of the prison. It would have been greater faith in, in my estimation or, or my guess for him two years after helping the butler being ignored to keep a good attitude and stay in charge and, and stay in the right position. Those things might have looked greater to me. But the Holy Ghost picked the greatest point of Joseph's faith to be just before he died, he remembered the promise of God that the children of Israel would leave Egypt. And he gave commandment. He made his brothers swear. He gave commandment concerning his bones. There was a, when, uh, uh, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, there was a special company that had charge, whose only job was to have charge of Joseph's bones. Now here's one thing that, and we don't have much information about this, but let me throw this out to you for you to consider. For 400 years, there's no word of God. Between Joseph and Moses, nothing. There's no prophet. There's no visitation, nothing. We have no idea what happened in that period of time other than the Pharaoh forgot who, Moses, or who Joseph was and enslaved Israel and the children of Israel became servants. That's all we know. 400 years without anything spoken of by God. During that time, the only thing the children of Israel had to look at if they wanted to. No Bible. Nobody going around preaching, hey, remember God's promise. Nothing. The only thing they had to look at was Joseph's coffin. The tomb that was prepared for Imhotep. They knew who he was. They had the opportunity, at least, to remember all of their days and pass down the story to their children. That's Joseph. 
And Joseph said, we're coming out of here one day, and he wants to go with us. So we're supposed to carry his coffin when we go. Now, did they do that? Well, probably not to the degree they should have. But some did. Notice in verse 23. Now we go to Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Can I ask you a question? Isn't that the faith of Moses' parents? Why does it credit Moses' faith? Why does it credit something to Moses? Now, we know something about this. The book of Exodus tells us a little bit about this. Joseph's parents were named Amran. The father was named Amran, and the, father, or the, uh, the mother was named uh, Jacobet. Now, who were they? We don't know. Don't know anything about them. But what we do know is that the children of Israel were so blessed and multiplying at such a great rate that Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that was then, had given a commandment saying the firstborn of every, uh, I'm sorry, not the firstborn, but the, every male child that was born of the, the Hebrews had to be cast into the Nile River. As soon as a male child was born, throw them in. Now, the girls, leave them there. We'll use them for servants when they grow up. And as a result, the midwives, the Egyptian midwives, apparently had some sort of, of, of search command where they had to go through every several months. That's probably why the Bible tells us about three months. They hid him for three months. They couldn't hide him any longer than that because that's when the search was going to take place. And so for three months, Joseph, I mean, uh, what's his name? Moses' father and mother decide to ignore the commandment of the Pharaoh to throw the, the newborn male children, newborn male, male babies, into the Nile River. And they hid him for those three months. Now, at the end of those three months, they created this basket of reeds and put him into the Nile River. They floated him into the Nile River. Now, why did they do that? It says they didn't fear the, Lord, the, the king's commandment. Why? What was that? The only thing that the Bible tells us, and it says the same thing in Exodus, it says here. It says they saw that he was a proper child. Now, in Exodus, it says they saw that he was a goodly child. The Hebrew word is the same word that's used in uh, the creation account where it says God looked at his creation and saw that it was good. That's the word good where it's talked about as far as uh, Moses is concerned. But other translations, you look at other translations, you'll find out they'll say he was a handsome child or it has something to do with the excellence of his features or something like that. It's not talking about how he looked. In the Greek where it says he was a proper child, I don't know where they got the word proper, but the word proper, the word that's translated proper is the same word that's translated city earlier in the chapter. So literally it's saying, let me read it so I get it correct. By faith, Moses, <coughs> excuse me, when he was born was hid three months of his parents because they saw that he was a child of the city. What does that mean? That means he was a child of destiny. They saw something on this kid when he was born. We don't have any indication that they planned this. But when they saw him, something happened. There was a spark of some kind of revelation on the inside of them. There was something that happened that caused them to see this child has a destiny. We can't throw him into the river. I doubt if any parent was excited about that. I mean, that would have to be a, a terrible experience. And the only way you could make somebody do that is by fear of, of being caught not obeying the king's command, the Pharaoh's command. But they saw something in Moses who was born at the height of the destruction of the male population of Israel. They saw something in him that saw that he was a child of destiny. So forget the, forget the movies you've seen. It's not like the movies. When they make this, this, uh, this basket to put him in the Nile River, they didn't sail him down the river. They, they sailed him and released him into the plan of God. And that's where Pharaoh's daughter found him, took him, raised him for her own. Moses' sister wound up being, who was following along and saw what was going on when he saw Pharaoh's daughter find the basket and find the child. She went running up to him and said, oh, gee, what have you found? She said, well, it's a new baby, but I don't have any way to feed him. Well, it just so happens that I know of somebody that's nursing, and she could come and help you. So he goes and gets Moses' mother, Jochebed, Jochebed, I guess it is, and brings her. And so she winds up being Moses' nurse in Pharaoh's house. Because he had a destiny. Do you realize that the greatest of the... Jesus said this, 
somebody was talking about how great uh, uh, the prophets were, how great John the Baptist was, literally. And he, Jesus said, yes, John the Baptist is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Now stop and think about what that means. You've got Moses who did phenomenal things. We'll see some of them recorded here. You've got Elijah who did phenomenal miracles. You've got Elisha who did twice as many miracles as Elijah did. You've got Isaiah who spoke of the, the Redeemer. You've got uh, Jeremiah who prophesied of the end. Ezekiel who prophesied of the end. You've got all kinds of guys that did absolutely phenomenal and, and spectacular things. And he takes John the Baptist who never performed a miracle to our, our knowledge. And he said, John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. That means greater than Moses. Moses was an Old Testament prophet. He said, John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament, of the, all those that came before him, all the Old Testament prophets. He was still operating. John the Baptist is still operating under the Old Covenant, even though Jesus is alive because he hadn't been to the cross yet. So the Gospels are Old, Old Testament times too. And he said that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. And he said, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. What kind of destiny does that mean you've got? There's a meaning there, folks. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the, sons of, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for that he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Folks, there's three words you need to see. Verse 24, refused. Verse 25, choosing. Verse 26, esteeming. The pinnacle, now it speaks of several different things, but the first act of faith that it speaks of regarding Moses was his decision to turn his back on his position in Pharaoh's house. You remember the story? The book of Exodus gives us some great, goes into some detail. Uh, I think it's great detail, but at least a lot of detail. But anyway, it tells us about Moses. It tells us that Moses was groomed to be Pharaoh. Now, there were others that were, that were further along and, and uh, higher in the, in the line. But Pharaoh's daughter presented Moses as given by God. He came out of the Nile River. They worshiped the Nile River. And so when she got this child out of the Nile River, they recognized, they knew it was Hebrew. They knew it was a Jewish child. And, but, but she presented it as, this is a child that God has given unto me. Now that was the big deal about Pharaoh. Pharaoh always claimed to be God. That's why they had to concoct this story about when one Pharaoh died, he didn't really die. God can't die. He just traveled over to the other side. And you've got different people in, uh, in Egyptian history that didn't follow a line of descendancy but came out of nowhere and they claimed to have come, one, uh, one later Pharaoh claimed to have come from the, the, uh, beneath the, the legs of the Sphinx. He just appeared. The God of the sun sent him down. And son of a gun, there he is. You know? And so there was, there was great importance attached to Pharaoh. I mean, a great importance attached to Moses. Now, he had an Egyptian name. We don't know what it was. I'll tell you why in a minute. We don't know what his Egyptian name was. But he's in Egyptian history, too. And so he was, he's groomed to be someone who can be Pharaoh. Whether or not he is depends on who lives and who dies and that kind of stuff. And there was a lot of people killed the next one in line to try to get jump over them and that kind of stuff in Egyptian history. That's why the, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a list... Um, what do they call it? The, the list of kings? Is it something like that? It's something like that. Anyway, this list of kings for pharaohs is supposed to go back 8,000 years. Longer than the earth, longer than mankind has existed. And that's why Egypt claims to be the, the longest living civilization and oh, they're great and they're great and all this kind of stuff. Well, the list of kings is a bunch of bunk. You can disprove it. You can prove that this, that this guy didn't follow this guy and this guy didn't follow this guy. It, it's just, it's junk. It's just them claiming to have some kind of great heritage that nobody else has. But we do know certain things from it. We know that, uh, that we know that Moses was being groomed to be Pharaoh if he is, you know, if his number's called, so to speak. But all that time, he's growing up with the education, the best education there is, which by, by and large was astrologers 
and uh, and magicians and stuff like that. Do you remember the uh, uh, the magicians in Pharaoh's court that that Moses dealt with when he obeyed God and went back to get uh, the, uh, get the children of Israel, get Pharaoh to, to release them? You remember that Moses was schooled in all those things too. Moses was schooled as a great military leader. There there are uh, lists of of exploits that Moses, under his Egyptian name, performed while he was still in Egypt. Moses was a great builder. Moses, Moses, uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter was most probably Hatshepsut. Say it for me. Somebody got it? There you go. Okay, what she said. That was Moses, uh, that was Moses' Egyptian mother. And, uh, and, and, and he built her tomb. It's there. We visited it. And, and so there's a lot of stuff that Moses did and Moses was known for by his Egyptian name while he was still operating as the, the daughter of, uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But there came a point in time when he was age 40 that Moses became aware of something about God's plan. He became aware of his destiny. Now the, the, the movies put it out like he came to realize he was an Egyptian. Folks, you can go to the, the museum in Cairo and you can see statues of Moses. And it's so obvious that it's him. He's the only guy that's got a nose spread all over his face. The Egyptians had this, this streamlined, sleek nose and, and all this kind of stuff. It's so obvious it's Moses. It's so obvious. And, and so it wasn't a matter of he didn't know that he was Hebrew. All of a sudden at age 40, he realized, oh, look at here. What happened to me? You know? That wasn't the way. He knew he was Hebrew all along. Pharaoh's daughter knew he was Hebrew. Knew he was a Hebrew child. Everybody knew that he was a Hebrew. But there came a point in time where he became more aware of the destiny that God had upon him than he was aware of his position, the honor that he had, the wealth that he had, and all the other things. And that's where he made his choice. Now let's read these verses of Scripture again with that in, with that in mind. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, that means age 40, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Think about what that means. How do you think Pharaoh's daughter, Hatshepsut, is going to think about that? I mean, it looks like it's being ungrateful. It looks like he's turning his back on everything there is. What he's doing is he's rejecting his position. He's saying, I choose not to be in this position any longer. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Notice he didn't want to go back to his own people. He recognized his destiny was with the people of God. Big difference. Big difference in his people and the people of God. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect and the recompense of the reward. You remember the story in the, in Exodus? It says that Moses... Uh, and, and this really puts it in context for us. Moses rejected his position. Now, that's, again, you're going to have to forget the movies because that's not the way the movies show it. But Moses rejected his position as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then, while he was with the people of God, he saw one of the, the um, uh, slaves being mistreated. And so he killed the taskmaster that was beating the slave. You remember the story? Hit him into the sand. Well, the next day, Moses comes out. He sees two guys, two Jew, Jewish guys, two Hebrews, arguing with one another. And so he tries to stop the argument. And one of the guys says, who made you a judge over me? Now, folks, that's a significant statement because that's what, that's what Moses recognized his destiny to be. The judge over Israel. The judge and the deliverer of Israel. And so he says, who made you a judge over me? He said, you're going to kill me and bury me in the sand like you did the Egyptian? Well, once Moses realized other people knew about that, that's when he took off. And he took off because the Bible says in Exodus that he was afraid of the Pharaoh. Now, when Moses left Egypt, it became known why. Here's what he did. Here's this guy that refused his position. He turned his, turned his back on, on his Egyptian mother and what she had done for him and all this kind of stuff. And now he kills an Egyptian, which is a, a fine punishable by death. I mean, it's a capital crime. And so he runs from Egypt for the purpose of staying alive. He's not standing there and saying, no, God's on my side or anything like that. He's running. He's scared. He knows the power of Pharaoh. He knows the, 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 the law. He knows what's going to be demanded of justice. And so he runs. He tries to get out of there. 
Now that's going to have some bearing on some, one of the next things that it says about Moses. Let's read a little bit further. We'll come back and discuss some of it as we go. But notice it says in verse 27, it says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That can't be talking about when he left Egypt the first time. Because the book of the Exodus says he left because he was scared of Pharaoh. And as a matter of fact, it says that when Moses was talking to God and God says, go back to Egypt and say, let my people go. Tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. He says, they're going to kill me. And God says, no, the other Pharaoh's dead. There's a new one now. So what is it saying? By faith, he forsook Egypt. It's not talking about when he ran. It's talking about the faith that it took for him to renege on his position, to deny his position. To refuse the, the honor and the position, the, the position and the honor that goes with it. To refuse the wealth of Egypt, the pleasures of sin. Egypt's a type of the world. It just means the wealth and the pleasures of the, of the world are a type of it. And then finally it says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of the treasures of Egypt. So what does he turn his back on? He turned his back on everything that the devil wants to tempt you and I with now. Position. Or in making a name for yourself, fame of some type, recognition, whatever you want to title it. Wealth. And whatever pleasure there is in doing whatever your flesh wants to do. Now folks, you've got to realize, Moses had a blank check on anything he wanted to do. Yet he turned his back on all of that because he recognized the destiny that God had for him. So what did he do? It says he esteemed the reproach of Christ. Now, it would be one thing to look at it and say, well, you know, if you serve God, then, then, then God pays off. Well, that's true. We're going to see that in the next verse. But it says that he esteemed the reproaches of Christ greater riches than everything that was in Egypt. Now, can I ask you a question? What did Moses know about Christ? Yet Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, says that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches. Apparently, Moses has been taught through his association with his mother, who stayed his nurse and therefore he stayed uh, close to them. He knew who his, who his real mother and father was. Like I said, everybody knew he was Jewish. So he knew who his mother and father was. They must have known something. When they saw this destiny upon him when he was born, they must have known something similar to what Joseph knew. It had to have been passed down to some degree because that has now sparked, 40 years later, it's now sparked something in, in Moses who recognizes that he's got a destiny with the children of Israel because they're the people of God, tries to take it upon himself and do it in the flesh, and that's why he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. And folks, that is so common. It's so common. Whenever you get something in your heart that God wants you to do it, our first impulse is to run out and do it. I've told you stories about how frustrated I used to get with Brother Hagin. He'd come, we'd come after a, out from a meeting and Brother Hagin would look at us and this, uh, the young people around. He'd say, okay, guys. He said, the Lord spoke to me tonight and told me what we're going to do next. And he'd tell us what it was. And we'd be, we'd be ready. We'd look and say, okay, well, he can take this part and I'll take this part and he can do this part. And Brother Hagin said, no, 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 don't get excited. He said, just because we know what to do doesn't mean it's time to do it. I would frustrate the shoe out of us. We'd say, well, what do you mean? Brother Hagin, you don't understand. This will bring you into your fourth phase of ministry. This will bring Jesus back. we got to go. In all our wisdom, of course, we knew what we were doing, huh? Brother Hagin said, nah, you guys just cool your jets. Just be still. I'll tell you when it's time. So we went through this time of, of really excited. Here we're going to do it. Okay, well, he's not telling us today, but maybe it'll be tomorrow. And it's not tomorrow, so then maybe it'll be the next day. And then maybe the next day. Maybe the next day. Then finally we sit around and we're so frustrated. We're talking about, will he never come on? Doesn't he realize it's time to go now? I mean, just because God told him how doesn't mean we don't know when. We got this figured out. We need to go. So we went from this excitement to this frustration. And finally we got to the place where it was like, oh, you don't care if we do it or not. And that's when he'd say, okay, now time to do it. And a lot of times that's the way it works. You go from excitement because God told you something, God gave you direction, to frustration because you can't, either it's not time to do it, if you're waiting, or you try to do it on your, on your own and it doesn't work. That's what Moses did. Wound up killing a guy. 
try to deliver people in the flesh. And finally, you get to the place where you don't care, and that's when it worked. And that's exactly how it was with Moses. Exactly how it was with Moses. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt. He spent 40 years in the wilderness with nothing. In 40 years in Egypt, he had everything. 40 years in the wilderness, he had nothing. By that time, he's forgotten anything about destiny. He's forgotten anything about God's purpose or anything else. God appears to him in the burning bush. He says, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses says, I can't do that. Well, you thought you could 40 years ago. It took 40 years for Moses to be educated in Egypt. It took 40 years for God to get Egypt out of him. And then at age 80, he went to Pharaoh and became useful for the purpose of God. Now, I wouldn't suggest that you wait till age 80 to get useful for God. But you see the progression. So it says, by faith he forsook Egypt. That means turned his back on his position and the honor and the, and the riches and so forth, pleasures. Not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That shows you what his understanding of his call and his destiny was. There was something invisible, something that he couldn't see, that he deemed to be of greater value than all the riches and the pleasures and the position of the world's superpower. Now, back to verse 26, notice it says he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He expected a reward. One of the things that the Bible says in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, we saw this earlier in verse 6. Well, we're right here in Hebrews 11. Look at verse 6, so I don't have to quote it to you. Verse 6, it says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, must believe two things. If you're going to come to God, you're going to have to believe two things. Number one, he is. In other words, he is who he says he is. He is who the word declares him to be. Number two, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God expects two things of you. Number one, to believe who he is. And number two, to expect him to reward you. And you can't please him unless you believe those two things. Now, most of the church world has pushed off the reward till heaven. That's not what this is talking about. Moses had respect for the recompense of the reward. He's expecting God to pay him back here. Yeah, there's a heavenly reward. Sure there is. God takes care of that. You don't have anything to do with that part. God expects you and I to believe for him to bless us here. And God makes it so much of an issue that he makes it a demand to please him. It's not a suggestion. It said without faith it's impossible to please him. And in order to please him and have this kind of faith that is pleasing to him, you have to believe that God is who he says he is. And number two, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's not a good idea. That's a demand from God. Remember David? David goes to where his brothers are lined up for war. The other side of the hill, or the other side of the valley, Goliath comes down while David's there. And he starts making these threats and all this kind of stuff. And David speaks up and says, who is this guy? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And people start answering. They said, oh, man, that's Goliath. Did you see the size of that guy? Man, he's the biggest guy around. He wants to challenge one person to come out and fight. And that way the armies don't have to kill each other. And, and whoever wins, the other side, will, the other group of people will serve them. And he said, and, and King Saul doesn't know what to do about him. King Saul has offered him all kinds of stuff. He's offered him half the kingdom and his daughter. Uh, I don't know if that was a plus or not. But nevertheless, uh, the half of his kingdom and his daughter. Maybe that's the only way he could get her, get all, you know, whatever. Um, and so, so David then starts going around. He starts asking the same question. The Bible says he starts asking other people, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And what's the reward for getting rid of him? It says so. The Bible says so. It says David's looking for what the reward is. Folks, that's what God expects of you and me. He doesn't expect us to take the religious notion of, well, it's going to be tough down here on the earth. And we're just supposed to tough it out and suffer through life, never expecting anything. Now, that's impossible to please God thinking like that. God demands that we believe that he is who he says he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Verse 26. Or I'm sorry, where are we? Verse 28. It says, through faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that, 
lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. There is nothing in Judaism that is more sacred than the Passover. Nothing. Now, here's the contrast I want you to see between Joseph and Moses. Joseph held fast to a generation-old promise, and it was everything that he based his life on. He's looking for the fulfillment of the promise of old. Moses has got to be willing to do something that's never been done before. Faith works both ways, folks. Faith works on holding on to what God's already said and being willing to step into something that's never been done. Moses keeps the Passover through faith. Notice it's credited to his faith. Now, we might look at it and just say, well, it was just obedience. God told Moses what to do. He said, have everybody kill a lamb, put the, put the blood on the doorpost. And, uh, and eat, you know, roast the lamb and eat it all until morning and, and uh, uh, not have any leavened bread with it and that kind of stuff. We could look at it and just say that was obedience. But as far as God was concerned, it was faith because it set up the most specific and effective picture of Jesus of anything that they have in, in Judaism. The Passover, uh, Paul even says it. He says Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. He identifies that the Passover is everything about Jesus. It's about the sacrifice. It's about the shedding of blood. It's about the passing over of judgment. And that's what it says about Moses. It says, through faith, he kept the Passover. And the sprinkling of the blood, type of Jesus sacrifice, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something that's going to mess up with some people's, mess with some people's theology. Okay? So hear me out. The angel of death. Jesus said, let me back up. Jesus said in John 10, 10, he said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. It's real easy to take John 10, 10 and say, everything that kills, everything that steals, and everything that's ever, everything that ever has killed, everything that ever has destroyed, everything that has stolen has always been the devil. The angel of death on the night of the Passover was from God. Because the angel of death was not out to indiscriminately destroy. The angel of death, like the devil will, the devil is an equal opportunity destroyer. He didn't care whether you're saved or not saved. He wants to kill you. God, on the other hand, has a righteous judgment of sin. And the Passover was all about the righteous judgment of sin. And that's why it was necessary for the blood, sprinkled by faith or in faith, to save the people on the inside of the house that were just as deserving of judgment because of the sin nature as the people on the outside of the house in the nation of Egypt. There was nothing special about the Jews that protected them from sin. They were just as much sinners as the Egyptians were. And therefore, the judgment that the angel of death brought, was they were just as deserving of that judgment as the Egyptians were. But there was one and only one thing that spared them, and that was the blood. The lamb that was sacrificed. That's why it was a matter of faith. Faith does that which can't be seen. What kept the angel of death from going in those houses and killing the firstborn of Israel? Their faith in the blood. Now, did they know what the blood meant? They only knew what Moses told them. If Moses hadn't believed in it, he wouldn't have been able to convey to them instructions for them to act on in obedience, and they wouldn't have been spared from the judgment. God credits Moses as the sparing of the firstborn or for the sparing of the firstborn in Israel. All because he obeyed God. Did Moses know that he was starting something that would last forever and and would be credited to him thousands of years later? No. He just knew he was obeying what God told him to do. Simple obedience is great faith in action, folks. Verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying or attempted to do, but were drowned. What is it saying? It's saying there's only one thing that kept the walls of the the Red Sea from collapsing on Israel when they collapsed on Egypt. Egypt did the same thing as Israel did. They passed through the middle of the water. There's one thing and only one thing that kept the walls from collapsing on Israel, and that was faith. What'd they do? You remember the story? They get trapped. Pharaoh reneges on his, on his uh, uh, promise to let them go. He chases them down. The world's superpower army, the greatest army, armed force in the face of the earth, is coming after them. And they're trapped. They've got nowhere to go. 
And so the children of Israel start murmuring and complaining. They're not in faith. The faith that it's talking about is Moses' faith. They're not in faith. They're saying, oh, Moses, weren't there enough uh, graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to die? Moses said, calm down. Just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And he turns around and says, God, what in the world are we going to do? Here's a good sign of leadership. A leader keeps his calm even when he doesn't know what's going on either. So he turns around and says, Lord, what are we going to do? we got a real problem here. And God says, one of the most astounding statements in the Bible, in my opinion, God says, why criest thou unto me? you got to be kidding. Why am I crying unto you? Do you not see Pharaoh coming at us? What do you mean, why am I crying unto you? That would have been my thinking. I guess that's why God used Moses instead of me. God said, why criest thou unto me? Take the rod, the one that you've done the miracles with in Pharaoh's court. It's the miracle worker. By the way, the Bible says Jesus is the rod of Jesse. Talking about the, of the lineage of David. The name of Jesus is the rod that you and I have. It's the miracle worker. It's the source of miracle working power. So he said, take the rod and stretch it out over the sea and divide the waters. He didn't say, you stretch your hand out over the sea and I'll divide the waters. He said, you divide the waters. God looks at working in, con- in cooperation with him a whole lot different than we seem to. We think it's us doing something and then, oh, please, God, come through. God says, not so much. He said, I told you to do it, now you divide the waters. No need to talk to me about this. You can't go to the right. You can't go to the left. Pharaoh's coming in front of you. There's only one place to go, through the water. Divide the water. Now, I don't think that would have been my first thought. How about you? But that's the position that God takes with it. What are you crying unto me for? Take the rod that I gave you to do miracles with and divide the waters. And he does. And at that time, without Moses asking anything, God puts a pillar of fire between the children of Israel and Pharaoh's armies. When Moses sticks out the rod to do what he's supposed to do, that's when God does his part. He becomes their rear guard. So Israel turns around, faces the water, sees this thing going on, or, you know, piling up like a wall on either side, and they start through. They go through on dry land. Now, I have no idea what it was like. I, I like to imagine what it was. But I can see all these unbelieving people going through there saying, oh, no, it's going to fall. It's going to fall. It's going to fall. It's going to fall. I cannot believe for one minute they go through and say, oh, yeah, okay, well, we figured it would be something like this. No way. They've just been crying out to Moses, did you bring us out here to die? So they're probably going through just as terrified as they were before they ever started. But they go through because Moses is acting in obedience with what God told him to do. They get to the other side. Moses is standing up on the, on the, the rock on the side of the, the river, standing there holding his rod out until everybody gets over. Then Pharaoh sees what's going on. The pillar of fire disappears. Then Pharaoh chases in after him. Well, Pharaoh and his army chases in after him. And they get in there, and the Bible says that their wheels drove heavy. What it means is it's not dry ground for them. They get stuck in the mud. Now, how did it turn into mud? It was dry ground for Israel just a little bit before. Now it's mud for Pharaoh. Folks, we limit God so much in our thinking. Bless our hearts. They get out there, get stuck in the mud, and the walls collapse on them. And there's only one thing that the Bible says made the difference. Just like there was only one thing that made the difference on the, on the Passover night between the angel of death for the Egyptians and for the Israelites. And that was faith. Only one thing made the difference between going through the Red Sea for the, the Egyptians and the Israelites. And that's something called faith. And every bit of that's credited to Moses. And it's used as an example for how you and I should live before men. We should live like Joseph, who looked back at the promises of old, even though they were, well, what, three generations away, almost 100 years old? Well, no, Moses, or Joseph was 120 or 110 when he died, so it's probably 200, maybe 250 years old. He looks back at a promise that's hundreds of years old, however long I'd have to figure it up. Never thought about it before. 
It's a hundreds of year, hundreds of years old promise. Yet he acts on it like it was said yesterday. Moses acts on something new and isn't put off by the fact that it's never been done before. And the Bible says both of those are examples for us. I love Hebrews 11. These guys didn't have half of what you've got. They didn't have anything in comparison to what you've got. You've got God living on the inside of you. You've got the name of Jesus that is above every other name. You've got the greater one that's living on the inside of you. He's not coming and showing up from time to time when they needed him like in the Old Testament. He lives in you. What they did is nothing compared to what we ought to be doing. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand. We've gone long enough. We'll just quit here. I think we can get through with uh, Hebrews 11 in two more weeks. I think. We'll see. Let's pray before we go. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these great testimonies of faith that we can use to inspire us to live by faith because it's just as true for us as it was in the day that it was written, the just shall live by faith. Father, what a privilege it is to look at promises of old and know that even though the promise may be old, it's still true today. It's still true and it's still new. And Father, like Moses, may we be willing to do a new thing just simply because you prompt us or speak to us or direct us to. Father, thank you that there's nothing that's too hard for you. And the greater one lives on the inside of us. That means there's nothing too hard for us when we're walking in obedience. Thank you, Father, that your word never fails. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.